Good morning. I'm Chris Farrell, and you're listening to NPR News. And I'm glad you could join us today. And of course, I'm sub-hosting for Angela Davis. Now, art comes in many forms, whether it's music you jam to or the films and theater performances you watch or, you know, the art that you display in your home. Creative work can spark emotions and reflect our humanity. We love to create art, and we've been making art for centuries. And to paraphrase the 17th century French philosopher Descartes, we create and therefore we are. But what happens when AI, computer systems with the ability to solve problems and learn, create art in minutes, if not seconds? Can the products of AI spark the same response to human creativity? Where is the... Where's the meaning, the imagination in creating art with AI? And what happens to copyright with AI? So the rapid emergence of AI suddenly paints a creative future full of promise and peril. There are so many more questions than there are answers, including what happens to teaching when AI becomes our ghostwriter? Who needs to pay professional musicians and their skills honed over the years when an AI can make music at a much cheaper cost? So this morning... Donnell, one of our producers, she asked an AI program to make a motivational pop song. And in seconds, it created this. Not bad. That's pretty good. So many people who make living off their creativity, I mean, think screenwriters, voice actors, musicians, and by the way, journalists, worry that AI will eliminate some jobs and reduce pay for the work that remains. So we're going to take a stab at how should we be thinking about the changes coming to creative endeavors and enterprises with AI with several guests. We'll talk about how people are using the technology to create new and original art. We'll also examine the concerns artists have for their future livelihood. And I want to hear from you. You probably heard a lot about AI lately. Are you worried about it? What do you think about AI's impact on the arts? If you're an artist, do you see AI opening up new possibilities? Or do you feel that this will affect your livelihood? What do you want to know about AI? The phone lines are open for your questions. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. So now let me bring in our guests. Damien Real is a lawyer, musician, and coder at Velex. He's also the co-founder of the All the Music Project, a database of 471 billion melodies. Did I get that right? That's all correct. Really good to be here with you. Uh, thanks for being with us. Tim Brunell is here in the studio with me. He's a freelance creative consultant and adjunct professor at Minneapolis College of Art Design. Thanks, Chris. Excited to be here. And a little later, we'll bring in Kelly Grayler. She's the co-founder and CEO of Alice Riot, an art licensing and creative consulting agency in Minneapolis. So, Tim, Damien, I'm going to start with the two of you and some framing. All right. So I'm going to go first to you, Tim, and then I'll go to Damien. What is artificial intelligence? I mean, give us the sort of what are we thinking? What are we talking about here? Okay. So the idea of artificial intelligence, it's code, right? Running on hardware, software running on hardware. And it's been around for decades, right? We know the, uh, you, you hear about scientists and PhDs doing that kind of work since the 40s and 50s, right? Uh, cryptography, like how do we break uh, the Enigma code in World War II, right? The, the Germans had a code 
that was an early, early form of artificial intelligence. How do we get a machine to think uh, in the way that human brains think? So that's kind of the foundations of it. And then as, as you think about, you know, the advancements of word processing or uh, calculation with numbers, uh, the software's only gotten better and better and better and better. And most recently, what we saw back in November when uh, ChatGPT rolled out uh, was this notion of large language models. Um, the, the GPT, the T, refers to transformers, which is, again, a type of coding. Um, there were eight uh, scientists who were all at Google. Oddly enough, they all have left. Um, but uh, transformers is, again, another way of coding, uh, of handling information that allows for um, advancements in the way that information is processed. So, you know, I think the important thing to consider with AI is that it is not yet thinking in the way that you and I as human beings think. Uh, I tend to coach people and say it's a pattern recognition machine and it generates patterns as a result. Damien, what would you like to add? I think that artificial intelligence largely is uh, what people think of as magic. That is software you don't understand. <laughs> and so if, <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you think about that, in the early 1980s, we had an amazing piece of artificial intelligence called spreadsheets because, you know, accountants used to take hours and days to be able to do things that now you could do in seconds. Uh, in the 1990s, we had an amazing artificial intelligence called MapQuest, where you could turn from one place to the other. So largely, these things have turned from artificial intelligence to just being software. So really, I think we are on a path, a continuum of things we don't yet understand that we call AI to things that we then just think of software, which is just software. Okay, but Damon, yeah. what is it that makes us seem different when, um, you know, as you mentioned, we're all used to software, we use various programs, and yet you hear expressions like learning and uh, putting things together in different ways. And, you know, I've gone to chat uh, GPT and you put in, um, what should I ask experts about AI for a non-expert audience? Comes up with pretty good questions. So it seems like something more is going on here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So if you think about the way that neural nets, also known as large language models, and that's things like ChatGPT, BARD, and others like it, what they do really is to be able to take, uh, think of it like the entire internet and every book ever written, and creates a statistical model of words that are likely to follow each other. So for example, I went to drive my blank. Words that follow that would be car, automobile, truck, um, each of these things lives together in what's called uh, vector space. Uh, they're statistically likely. So what these machines have done, the large language models, is to ingest the entire net, uh, internet uh, and the, into all the books and figure out how words fit together in ways that then you can create output, much like a human would create output. And that's really what's different about this technology. And as I also understand, just like humans make things up, these programs make things up. Is that right? We are creative. Uh, we are creative, after all, uh, the, and machines uh, learn creativity from us. That is, they've ingested all of the novels, they've ingested music, they've ingested song lyrics. And so, uh, really, this brings to bear, really, the question, what is human creativity, and how much different is it than what a machine can crank out? Okay, Tim. And they've ingested the mistakes. Right. So, you know, let, let's be, let's be, we humans are not perfect. We have flaws. And so if you think about the vast database that is available, that's being used as the, as the, the basis of, of what an AI is creating, 
it's also predicated upon mistakes, right? Uh, and it's, it's predicated on differences of opinion. You know, I think to answer your question, I think that what makes it seem magical today is the speed. So the pro the sheer processing power is amazing. It's also kind of the fidelity, if you will, um, that the end result appears to be really good. You know, um, it, you, you, you ask it to write a term paper, you know, on a subject, which one of my 16 year olds did for school. And the end result was like, you know, that's C, C plus level work right there, you know. Of course, when you start to dig into it, you can start to see, oh, okay, you know, that that particular phrase there is a little clunky. That's not kind of how you would write it. Um, but also to discover, as you say, the mistakes, right? To get it, you know, it will boldly tell you that, uh, you know, Napoleon was the president of, uh, you know, Lithuania in 1920. And you're like, that's not true at all, you know? <laughs> um, so... It, the, the where it's incumbent on us, the receivers of the end results, to trust, you know, to verify, right? So I want to get to the callers in just a minute, but again, uh, same question for both of you. You know, just from what I know and just what you, what you said, there's been a lot of AI going on in a lot of companies. You know, if we think about mm -hmm. Siri and Alexa and all right. this, right? But it's AI in the arts that has seized the, the, the popular imagination, the popular fears. So what is it about AI in the arts that is so important or that we feel this is – this is a core issue here, Tim. I feel. I, oh, go ahead, I feel like it's. Oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I, I feel like no. it's. Uh, you know, never before have machines been able to create. That is, if you think about every yeah. technological progress, that is, printing press, the internet. Each of this is humans now being able to amplify through the printing press a bunch of copies, or through the internet. Now I can go anywhere in the world. But this is the first time where machines themselves don't need humans <laughs> to be right. able to create. That and creative endeavors, of course, that uh, that is very challenging to us. Tim. Yeah. I agree. I think it's the, the end result is surprising again, in terms of its sort of quality that we're seeing in this, again, the speed with which it arrives. Like, you know, I, I like to say that the, the wall of art, you know, in the advertising and design space, you used to have to, you had to know how to draw. You had to have some sense of how typography works or color space. Uh, and, and now all you need to do is, is know how to ask, know how to type. So you can just type and voila, uh, a result appears magically uh, in front of you. And, and so uh, the bar, uh, you know, the sort of democratization of art, uh, I think is shocking for a lot of people, right? Uh, we all know people, oh, I'm not creative, right? And that's a very common reaction. And kind of what a lot of these tools are saying is, no, you can be creative right now. Yeah. So let's go to uh, the the phone lines and let's go to... Mary in Minneapolis. And Mary, what is your, what's your observation or your question? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I have been working in publishing for over a decade. I've consulted with thousands of writers, and I actually have an IP development company where we develop book ideas and sell them to publishers. And in publishing, it's been just a fire with concern about uh, AI and especially from writers, because the large language models, they can churn out pretty convincing writing, right? And the position that I always take with writers, I mean, all those books that were scraped, that you're going to talk about copyright and all of those issues, right? But um, for creative kind of uh, generative output, writers, writers need to understand that they are still the prime mover. 
you put in a prompt to all of this AI, and I've experimented with, you know, PseudoWrite, Jasper, Longshot, all of these, all of these programs, but you still need to tell it what you want, what you want to see. You need to have that idea. You are the prime mover when you make that prompt. And so I think AI, as it currently stands, is more of a tool rather than a threat. I think all of that could change pretty quickly. But so far, I think that that human imagination is a core component of how we interface with AI and how we use it. And that creativity still belongs to the human for now. All right. Well, thank you so much for calling. And now let's go to John in Minneapolis. And John, what is your uh, experience with AI or your thoughts about AI? Yeah, so I'm a professional commercial photographer, um, and people have been talking a ton about this, um, just kind of all my colleagues and clients and almost anybody you can think of. And um, people are really nervous about it. And the thing that I've noticed, though, is that we're all kind of willing to use it ourselves, but we don't want it to, you know, we don't want our client to basically do it. Like, it's cool to lower your own workload in certain ways, but then... I think the the thing that is scared is like we get we're getting paid for that work, and so like um, I don't know. That's just an observation that I have. And oh I think no, that that's a real that uh, that's uh, thank you so much for that observation. I hadn't hadn't thought about yeah. it that way. So um, I'm going to go to Damien first, then uh, then Tim, and you know react to Mary and what John is saying. What what are your thoughts, Damien? I, I think that Mary's uh, and Jim's both have really great uh, points uh, with the book ideas. And uh, there is something in copyright law, and I'm a copyright lawyer. Uh, in copyright law, there's an idea called the idea-expression dichotomy. That is, ideas are uncopyrightable. Only the human expressions of those ideas are copyrightable. So as an example, star-crossed lovers, uh, that idea is uncopyrightable, but Romeo and Juliet, and then later the West Side Story. Those are each copyrightable expressions of that idea. So really, the making of the book ideas that Mary has, um, machines now, large language models, are really good at cranking out ideas. <laughs> that is, you can say, give me 100 ideas for a book, and it'll crank out 100 ideas, or 1,000 ideas, or 10,000 ideas. Um, so it'll create a, these ideas that are uncopyrightable. But the thing is, it'll also create expressions <laughs> that are also uncopyrightable, according to the U.S. Copyright Office. Um, so that's that's thing number one with the books. On the photographers, um, the, the you know idea that uh, we as professionals want to use it, uh, but we don't want our customers to use it. That's that's an important distinction. Uh, yes. And I would say that um, that photographers and artists and uh, writers, we all have an artist's eye that have been honed over ten thousand or more hours. Uh, and so the thing is that even if, you know, the, the lay people are able to kind of do it, um, you still need an artistic uh, eye to curate and to be able to make things more beautiful than maybe a layperson can. Tim? Yeah, I, I'm all in on this. Uh, I think Mary's uh, sentiment points to a, a quote. The, there's a, a creative director named Nick Law who was talking at the Cannes Advertising Festival back in May. And in reaction to AI, he said, mediocrity is now free. Right. So on, on the one level, if you were able to make a living just doing, you know, C plus work for a while, maybe not anymore in the face of AI, because I, I feel like AI raises the bar for all of us who are artists uh, from a writer to a photographer, to etc. It says, hey, the, 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 the floor for acceptable creativity is here now. It's been raised. We need to have better insights. We need to have more uh, discerning craft. 
right? And to John's point, I mean, you look at what's happened with Adobe Photoshop and its generative fill. It's mind-blowing. You took a photograph, um, but upon reflection, you're asking yourself, could we expand to the right or could I, could I... I need I need more information to the right or the left of the photograph that I took, and and now it will generate that for you. It's mind blowing, right? Um, but it's also very enabling. So yeah, wonderful stuff. Okay, so now is probably a good time to bring in uh, our next guest, which is Kelly Grayler, and Kelly is the co-founder and CEO of Alice Riot. That's a great name for a firm. Is an art licensing and creative consulting agency in Minneapolis. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. So, uh, open-ended question, but what are your thoughts on what's been said already and some of the the calls that we've gotten? Well, I I first want to give a nod to Tim about the mistakes that are ingested, because the last time I had an avatar generated of myself, I looked like a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model, and I am not a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model. (laughs) So, mistakes ingested include all the Photoshopping we've been doing for the past four decades on, on our media and content. Um, I think that um, human imagination, the dichotomy um, in terms of idea and expression is spot on. And our point of view is the technology is making everything faster, but we're coming back to some very fundamental principles. If you want to be an artist who can earn a livelihood as an artist, it's getting to a point where you can't ignore the technologies anymore. And you need to be intentional and take them seriously in terms of what will be the rules for what you create and put out there. And um, and it's tough because not every artist is ready to go there in terms whether it's doing digital art or it's stepping into, you know, the whole NFT art space. But really, you know, how how an artist is rewarded and compensated has been a historical problem in the art world. You look at, you know, the the 17 um, million in fine art sales at auction and how much of that money actually goes to an artist for, for centuries, the, the artists have not been on the receiving end of the financial gains of what they create. And so our point of view is get in there now and start setting some rules for what you create so that those who collect your work or reuse your work or license your work, understand how you will be compensated or not in the future. So this may be an unfair question, but, uh, do you consider, AI-generated art, really art? Um, not necessarily. No, I do, you know, I do believe in the prompt that, you know, we are the prime mover. Mary, I would love to connect with you, by the way. Um, I, I do believe we're the prime mover on this. I think it can be, uh, it can be a medium, not unlike paint or mixed media, you know, physical pieces. I think there are possibilities with it. And you do see some artists who are doing really interesting things using it to create art. But I don't think that it's automatically, yes, it, it, it creates fine art experiences. Um, no. No. Yeah. And uh, Damien, I want to ask you and, then, and Tim, a question off what, what Kelly has said and some of the calls. You know, when we've had these new technologies, if you look at the history, there's all this excitement about what it means for artists and creators. They're going to make – they're going to have new audiences. They're going to be able to get rid of the you know, the middle person and they're going to make more money. And then what it turns out is it's a couple of people in Silicon Valley make all the money. And the artists, yeah, maybe a little more democratized, but they actually don't make that much money. And so, uh, Damien, we're – it seems to me a lot of the – worry about this is who's going to get paid 
I think that's uh, that's a justifiable concern. And as a musician and an artist, I want people to get paid. And so really, um, the way that we have as a society paid people is through copyright. Uh, that is, I, for a limited time, you know, life of the author plus 70 years, get to have a monopoly on the thing I create. Uh, and during those life of the author plus 70 years, the idea is that in exchange for that monopoly, I can be able to create new things. I can be able to make money on the things that I've created. So it's essentially an incentive uh, for me to create things. Um, and so, of course, um, machines don't need incentives. <laughs> so, for example, my All the Music project, uh, I've created 471 billion melodies and I've copyrighted them. And the way that I've done that is through brute force, just like you can brute force a password by going AAA, AAB, Okay, AAC. I was going to ask you, how do you do yeah. that? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so you can brute force a password by going through all the possible permutations of letters. I did that with music, where I went do 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 re do 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 mi do do fa until I mathematically exhausted every melody that's ever been and every melody that ever can be to the tune of 471 billion melodies. I put those all um, on disc, and once they're put on disc, they're copyrighted automatically. So I've copyrighted 471 billion melodies, and then I put them all in the public domain to help protect songwriters uh, so that uh, so other people, if you know, I'm a very benevolent person, I like to think, but you can imagine a malevolent person uh, that would try to copyright all of the songs. And so the idea is that maybe, um, you know, if, if a machine cranked it out at 300,000 melodies per second, like I have, um, maybe we shouldn't give one person a monopoly on that melody for life of the author plus 70 years. Tim, I mean, it's really, I mean, it is at, at the core, it seems, or one of the core issues here is who's going to get paid? Is the artist going to get paid? Is this new world that we're talking about? Does it mean, hey, you got great, you got great opportunities to be creative. Oh, by the way, <laughs> you're not going to make any money. But that that's kind of always been the challenge of being an artist, right? You know, whether you were a painter on the streets of Paris or a musician in New Orleans, um, we humans have um, struggled to maybe pay artists what they're worth, right? Um, and capitalism, uh, you know, is going to do what it does. And so that's kind of always been a challenge. I think that AI has just exacerbated and kind of exploded that. I think, uh, you know, based on sort of what Damien was saying and what Kelly was saying earlier, it's like, it's important to recognize from an artistic standpoint that AI doesn't have a point of view. It is all points of view, right? It's, it's sucked in all of the music, all of the writing, all of the internet, right? So it it's output is sort of gen by default is sort of genericized. So I actually think that it's, it's a great time as an artist to be as distinct and different as you possibly can be. Um, because AI, you know, if, if you, if any of us have spent any time writing, like, Hey, write me a hundred headlines, um, write me a poem, uh, and, and chat GPT by about the third or fourth iteration, you're seeing repetition. You're not seeing, it's not the, the most insightful output. Right. And, and, and the same true with mid journey. I, you know, mid journey is certainly more surprising to me as, as a visual creation tool, as a generative tool. Um, but again, the end results aren't that surprising. They're not, they're not like the first time you saw Picasso, you know? So I feel like there's a great opportunity for humans to lean more into what makes us unique, what makes us distinct, uh, and, 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 and go in that direction. And, uh, Kelly, I mean, how is this affecting your conversations with artists and uh, at your firm in ter terms of thinking about licensing? And mm -hmm. so how is that informing this conversation? It's, it's, it, it absolutely is a part of every conversation that we're having, because if you think about what is ultimately coming from a consumer experience with these technologies, 
what the brands are racing toward, what what the art world is racing toward, what it you know Hollywood is racing toward, is this idea of how these technologies will enable consumers to have immersive experiences, this intersection between the physical and the digital. I mean, think back to Pokemon Go five years ago, mm. and you saw people walking up and down the parkways, staring at their phones, collecting alternate reality avatars around them. You know, we're going to see more and more immersive experiences. We're going to see more and more of a digital identity and the idea of ownership, ownership of what is in the virtual world. How does that translate over into the physical world? And so when we have a conversation with a brand about licensing artwork from an artist, we're very upfront, even if those brands aren't yet in these spaces um, or the artist isn't, we want to at least have the conversation and say, this is the reality. This is the next wave that's coming what are the terms that we put in place for use, rights, royalties, residuals that the artist will earn through this licensing agreement? Um, you know, I think that this is, again, artists maybe traditionally, maybe, you know, to Tim's point, haven't been paid what they deserve. There's also the economic realities of does the artist understand what it takes to be economically viable and earn wealth through the creation of art? And these technologies can absolutely enable that. And we've seen, you know, before the the bubble burst with crypto, watching what happened with Beeple and the first NFT that was at auction that went for $69 million at Christie's. And and looking at the Board 8 Yacht Club and how, I mean, right now that's valued as of June at $731 million, and that's low. But these are <laughs> things that, yeah, I mean, and, 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 and I've got a very strong point of view about the Bored Apes. I don't think anyone checked art history and propaganda <laughs> techniques used in the early 20th century before they were created. Amen. But, the, but the point is, is that they're there. And so what can we learn? You know, how can we help artists learn from that and say, look, you don't, you know, we, we had an artist come to us a few years ago. She was furious. She had sold one of her paintings to collectors and she found out later that they were turning around and licensing that artwork themselves. And she's she's like, what do I have? Do I have any rights to that? And so we think it's very, it's very important more than ever for an artist to say, you know, even, even create an NFT for all of your original works of art. Have that NFT serve as your smart contract. It's your certificate of authenticity for the physical work. Set the rules. Put the provenance in there. Set the rules on royalties and residuals in the future. If your painting ever gets to Sotheby's and is going for $10 million, do you think you should have a piece of that? And so there are going to be artists who say, no, I want to just create and put the work into the world. And that is perfectly fine. But the economics are more important than ever. And, and we really, you know, we're really bullish on the technologies, but also paying attention to the adoption curves and really at the end of the day, helping the artists understand how do you, how does she earn more from what she creates? Okay, so we're going to continue our conversation. I got more questions for, for Kelly and Damien and Tim. And, and what I want to do is go right to the phones to Chris in Fargo. Um, and Chris, what is your observation or what are your, what is your question? Yeah, good morning. Great topic. Um, my question uh, relates to does the Luddite argument ultimately ever win? So is the opposition to adopting AI in new fields, is it similar to the opposition that horse farriers had to the automobile or that the gas lighting industry had to the electrical lighting adoption? I mean, there will be economic disruptions with the introduction of new technologies, but isn't holding back its adoption holding us as a civilization back as a whole? 
I love this question. Uh, Damien, you want to take this? I would love to. That's that's the right question to ask. And I think that you're right that in human history, think of a technology that has ever been successfully rolled back. And I will give you a million dollars because this never <laughs> happened. Uh, right. Uh, so really, we as humans have always needed to adapt to whatever technology comes down the pike. And so what we as artists and uh, writers and musicians need to think about is that uh, how can we use this uh, tool to be able to make us more uh, compensated? And so as an example, I, my day job is with legal technology. And so a friend of mine took the Federal Register, which is federal regulations, which is some of the most dry reading you've ever heard. Uh, and It's he also said, a lot of pages. Yeah. It's a lot of pages. And so uh, it's really good for a large language model for, to do what he did to say, read, uh, summarize the Federal Register, but summarize it like a chill pirate lawyer. Uh, and so then it outputs uh, the Federal Register like a chill pirate lawyer. You could also say, make it in the style of Ernest Hemingway or make it in the style of Bob Dylan. Uh, or you, in the visual arts, you could say, give me a teddy bear riding a horse on the moon, which is weird and awesome, right? Uh, but it's better with human artistic weirdness, right? So I think if humans are able to take this, uh, the large language models, the technology that's here today, and be able to make it more weird, uh, we can actually increase the volume of our work. And we can customize it for the people that are paying us money to do the thing. Because really, in the end, we value, we as humans value human creation, not machine creation. So we can go to Target and buy a plate that's mass produced, but looks stone thrown for like a dollar. Uh, but we can go to somewhere else and get a handcrafted artisanal plate and we can pay $50 for that. So the idea is that because it's made by a human, it's valuable. Uh, no arena concert is going to be fronted by a computer because fans love humans. They, for humankind, uh, you know, for millennia, we've thrived on stories. Machines can't create stories. Machine, uh, humans create stories around the campfire. So really, that's how we humans uh, can make money is uh, by demonstrating our humanity. So let's go to Sean in uh, Minneapolis. And Sean, what is your experience or thoughts about AI? I'm a local illustrator uh, in Minneapolis and uh, artist, creator. And uh, I've just seen a lot of a lot of jobs um, in the way of, like, um, my rock art posters and stuff like that get lost to these um, AI computer-generated posters because, um, you know, it's, uh, the kind of work that I do requires a lot of uh, intense hours, and uh, people, it's a lot less expensive to um, pay somebody with something up that looks halfway decent and is accepted in a half an hour. So it uh, leaves artists like me unable to compete. I just see AI as losing the human touch, like um, the statements your, your guest was just um, saying. And uh, I think it's important to maintain that human touch. Like, yeah. I think it's Oscar Wilde, uh, I think is the quote, um, art is the highest form of, of um, human expression. So I just don't understand why people would strive to express themselves through a machine. It makes no sense to me. I see it more as a flight of stairs that the artist has to climb and, AI is that handicapped uh, disability ramp to help them get there. You know, okay. I could see it being so, I could see it being used as an inspiration for you to create an actual piece of art. You know, you right. dabble around in AI for your concept, and then, but uh, yeah, I guess that's about all I have to say. Yeah, Tim. I, well, I think both Sean and, and Chris are kind of speaking to two sides of of a very similar coin, and it goes back to something that. Um, that Kelly said earlier, um, AI is a wake up call for artists of all shapes and sizes to learn more about the business of their art. You know, uh, if you, you became an artist because you didn't want to deal with business, 
AI is saying... But every artist is an entrepreneur, right? right? right, I mean, by definition. Exactly. And so I think AI is in many ways a wake-up call to artists to say, hey, you need to understand the economics of your art and and the world that you're you're in. Um, Just because you make the art does not mean that uh, lots of people will like it or will be interested in it. Uh, And the marketplace is absolutely crowded. Uh, There's always been crap art. You know, uh, and, and, or people who who their artistic skill is that they're really good at repetition and mass production, maybe not in terms of quality of thinking. Uh, AI is just yet another example of that. Um, it also speaks to, I think, what um, what I think Chris said this earlier from uh, from Fargo is the, the notion or, or this is what Damien was talking about. Hey, the Federal Register, almost incomprehensible to, to many people, right? But what if AI can repackage it so that now it becomes comprehensible to you, right? When you think about uh, a piece of art, now we can have other iterations of it that are, you know, if you, uh, you're you disabled in some way, uh, now I can experience your piece of art through a, a, a different expression. So I think one of the benefits of AI is it's allowing us to explore and create new kinds of art that were previously unimaginable. And Kelly, I know you're going to have to be going, so I want to uh, make sure that you get to, to weigh in on these two calls. Oh, I'll I'll stick around. This is too good. Okay, so, great. Um, Thank uh, you. Th- you know, yeah, I, you know, I want to go back to the caller from Fargo, uh, and 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 I think that he raises a valid point. And I'd say that every technology cycle, certainly in my lifetime that we've had, we ask those same questions. And there mm-hmm. is so much about what is happening right now with AI, and more broadly with this whole basket of Web three. Everything from metaverse experiences to NFTs to cryptocurrencies to AI, all of the above, we're asking ourselves the same questions we were asking back in 2007 when there were these things called Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And oh my God, we will never have an HR department again because of LinkedIn. And and then go back a little bit earlier to the 2000s and, and e-commerce. Oh my God, we will never go into retail stores again. I think the human condition perseveres through technology cycles and the adoption curves are really the space to watch. And, and to, to the artists, I, I would say the decisions you made in those cycles, how did that work out for you in terms of how you're compensated and your value? And, and maybe some of them have been successful. I certainly know a number of very successful artists who were very savvy in terms of social media, not just putting stuff out there for free, but monetizing it. It's, it's time for more artists to think intentionally about the technology and, and, and not be afraid of it, but use it as leverage in their conversations. I, I go back quickly. I just want to say, go back to what's happening right now with the writer's strike and the actor's strike. Mm. And I mean, this is, this is a, a seminal moment for the entertainment industry. And when you hear the stories of actors being scanned by the studios and paid for one day and the idea is they'll never get paid again for AI use of their, of their likelihood, you know, their image. I'm like, you know, Dwayne Johnson donated millions of dollars to help out um, with like medical bills and, 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 and cost of living for, for the, the workers on strike. I'm looking for some, you know, tech billionaire to donate money to all of these actors to scan their own avatars and mint them themselves and, and set the rules for how the studios use their digital likeness. Mm. So it's, you know, and that's not, you know, that's not within reach for every artist, but I do again, come back to how do you make your money as an artist? How are these technologies 
going to enable you and how ultimately are consumers and collectors going to seek you out and engage with you, whether digital or physical. It's it's time to really, I think, embrace the technologies. And I probably just in the interest of full disclosure should interject here that some broadcast employees here at Minnesota Public Radio, NPR, are members of SAG-AFTRA, but we're under a different contract and we're not at strike, just in case anybody was wondering. We're getting some uh, lots of wonderful calls. So what I'm going to try and do is take two or three of them, and then I'm going to turn to all of you um, just because we're running out of time here. So let's first go to Mara and... Uh, Mara, I understand you're adjunct faculty at the U? Yes, and I also teach concurrent enrollment in a high school. As a writing teacher, the implementation of artificial intelligence is both terrifying and it also offers an amazing opportunity. I'm always worried that my students are going to take the shortcut instead of learning how to do the grueling task of writing. But I always tell them, your ideas... Your spark is what we want to see on the page. Your argument, your creativity, your life experience that no one else has. However, like the calculator, AI can be a great tool to fight the blinking cursor of death. So I tell students what you need to do is generate a list of like the the 12 great ideas that you want to get down on the page. Then have the AI write a crappy rough draft and then you get to go in and craft and fix and change and shape and the students inevitably realize it would have been easier to do it from scratch themselves okay so i want to go uh here and damien you know there i've had conversations with uh professors at the u teach history sociology and they're just really concerned about well if i get if I give a grade or people are just using AI, what am I teaching? This is going to ruin my profession. And what is your, what, what are your thoughts to that? Just off what um, Mara was saying. Uh, I think Mara's uh, points are right on point. Uh, my yep. wife is a professor of English, English and she, uh, you know, sees maybe A minus and A work coming out of large language models and thinks, you know, what, what are we really teaching? And I think what we're teaching is what Mara mentioned is we're teaching the ideas. Uh, that is, we're teaching to be able to come up with creative ideas in ways that haven't, uh, uh, other people have not done before. That's our humanity. And so what, if we think about what we need to teach and what we as artists need to create, we need to create things that uh, that are not the blurry JPEGization of the internet, as, as Tim <laughs> mentioned earlier, uh, which is just mediocrity. Uh, but we have to have our creative ideas uh, and then output it in new expressions of those ideas. And so as an example, I was asked uh, to write uh, the cover story of the Minnesota lawyer. Uh, and it was about 17 pages. And I thought, I don't have time to write 17 pages because it's about an hour per page. But then I thought, maybe I'll use a large language model to give my ideas, that is to give an, uh, the headings and subheadings of what the paper would be about. And then instead of 17 hours, uh, it took me about now about three hours to be able to crank out this thing that is actually really good. So it gave me about a 5x opportunity to be able to increase my writing. And the editor sound, said, that's great. So really, I think this is a, a maybe a harbinger of things to come for artists to be able to say, we can get our ideas on paper faster, better, stronger than we could have otherwise. Tim? I, I agree fully. I most of us aren't artists, right? I, you know, we, we went to school as young children and we crayons and art and things like that. But uh, we taught ourselves literally to, I'm not creative. I mean, I, that that's a, such a common statement. And so I feel like what AI has done here is to say, we're going to remove the fear of the blank page, right? So, well, 
maybe you don't have to, with the blinking cursor, start typing. AI will at least put something out there. And as Mora put it, you'll realize, oh, okay, hey, maybe what what the AI put here isn't that great, but now I can edit. Now I can begin. So I feel like one of the wonderful tools of AI is it's it's removing that fear of initial creation, right? Uh, the machine will at least fill the page with something. And now I, as an artist, can react to it. So we're going to teach more people that they can react and that they can edit and work with existing content. So let's go to Aninda in uh, Minneapolis. Aninda, did I get your name right? Yeah, you're... Close enough. Yes. <laughs> ah, I'm sorry. Please, what is your uh, observation? Yeah, so my uh, my story as a woodcraft artist, um, I just did my first vendor fair at the Juneteenth event and uh, where I sell things like Viking shields. But because I didn't have any signage for my business up, um, the KRSM MC of the event um, kept announcing me as the Black Viking. So the next day, my girlfriend surprised me with an image that she created using AI of me as the black Viking that looked amazing. So now today I'm headed in to do a photo shoot to recreate that image so that I can use it for <laughs> my branding. <laughs> I love this. Do it. This is terrific. So <laughs> thank awesome. you so much for calling in with this and Kelly, uh, your reaction, your thoughts. Uh, that, that's just brilliant. And, and I'm so pleased that, um, he, as an artist, he, um, his, he and his partner have used AI to create what can be used to help market and grow his business. So I, I say bravo. That's a great, that's a great example of, of use. And I want to, uh, take a, uh, written question. Uh, Damien, um, this one's from Sam in Minneapolis. And he says he's a theater artist and he's concerned with AI, you know, the way it's affecting writers and musicians, but he's excited about the potential for theater and feels that theater performance will be difficult to replace with a computer. I think that's right. And, you know, my my day job is as a lawyer and really a lot of lawyers are saying, is this going to take my job? And much like theater, um, lawyering, uh, that is litigation in front of judges and juries, that is a type of theater, right? So <laughs> and so I think that the odds of a litigator being replaced by a machine is very slim, just as the odds of a theater person uh, being replaced by a machine is slim, just like the th thought of a live performer that is a live musician. Um, we as humans connect with other humans and that we want to know what the human story is behind the art. Uh, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, Andy Warhol mass produced, you know, hundreds and thousands of things, uh, it wasn't the output, but it was the story behind the output that was most important. And so really, I think that, you know, our humanity, uh, this is the theme of this hour, the humanity needs to come through for it to be able to create value for people to pay for. And let's go to uh, Casey and Minnetonka. And Casey, what is your thought? I am a uh, member of sag -Aftra. Uh, and, um, you know, you all mentioned one of your uh, guests there a moment ago mentioned uh, the situation with SAG-AFTRA and WGA with the uh, negotiations that have fallen apart in the fact that we're on strike. And um, frankly, I think that uh, with our situation, um, you know, every creative uh, from writer to photographer to graphic designer should be, should be watching uh, what happens with uh, uh, the front lines, so to speak, that uh, SAG-AFTRA and WGA are on, because, um, I mean, I think it's present setting uh, because of our situation, and it's about um, consent and, and compensation for the actors, 
um, uh, with the, uh, you know, uh, as was mentioned a few moments ago, the, 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 the possibility of scanning a performer uh, and paying them for a half a day session and being able to use that for, you know, in perpetuity. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's quite, uh, uh, quite personal to me because it's, uh, it's my profession along with all the, uh, other uh, sisters and brothers in SAG after who are at battle with it at present. Well, thanks so much for, for calling in. And Kelly, we're, we're getting tight on time here, but those two words um, that uh, Casey used, consent and compensation. Absolutely. I, I, and, I, and I do. And, and, and whatever an artist can do to put themselves in a position to define their terms and what it means to them, whether it's through union or it's as an individual artist, I, I very much encourage artists to think about what compensation and ownership means to you as these technologies emerge and to be more intentional and setting your terms and making them discoverable, whether you mint them on a blockchain or you talk with an attorney and put something down, have something that documents what you want your terms to be. Otherwise, the technologies will move past you and you may find yourself in a position of saying, well, hey, what gives? And Tim, consent and compensation, you know, a lot of artists, that th- these aren't terms that necessarily are at the forefront. You go, don't go to MCAD <laughs> with that as part of your uh, notes. That's part of why you go to MCAD is to, to learn that as an artist, you also have some responsibility to yourself to think about the business side of it. I, I think that Kelly's mm-hmm. points are very well taken. And, and I, I feel for what, what Casey was just saying, you know, uh, I don't like the idea of uh, a technology company um, cloning me, as it were, and then representing using my an AI version of myself to to make whatever it is that they want to make without compensation. So um, it's it's definitely a, a golden era, a golden age for lawyers uh, to help us all kind of and philosophers to help us figure out well what do we want out of the culture that we're creating together uh, with this code that is now here in, in our day and age. And Damien, in about 15 seconds, you're the lawyer and the musician, the last word. I would say that we as artists and musicians have always balanced uh, creativity with money. And so we, <laughs> uh, the future of music is really uh, boomy.com is personalized songs and uh, songwriting service to make your mom cry. That's worth money. And so we, uh, we have to balance the fine art that is for us and consumer art that is for them and try to figure out how to make money with that consumer side. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a wonderful hour. Thank you for everyone who called in. And I really want to thank our guests, Damien Real, Tim Brunel, and Kelly uh, Grayler. Sorry, Kelly Grayler. And uh, this conversation has been produced by Matt Alvarez. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.